One more. There we go. This was one of my favorite all-time Dilbert uh, cartoons. Um, it has more significance than that. Um, <clears throat> jobs frequently come with padded resumes. And uh, in 2012, Facebook hired, uh, if you recall, uh, a new CEO by the name of Scott Thompson. They almost immediately had to fire him uh, because he... Uh, put on his resume that uh, he had a certain degree he didn't um, and, and found out he was lying, so that was kind of awkward for Facebook. Um, so sad. And, uh, but titles are important, and that's why people pad their resumes, right? And, um, and a lot of padding of, of resumes, I think, has to do with, with simply the competition between people which you see displayed there. Uh, and, and there's this, this uh, competition... And people want to, uh, uh, to, to show that they are superior than, than the people around them. And that's, I guess, one of the ways that you, you work your way up the ladder. And um, I, I was looking at, uh, at this, what you see behind you is an a actual title of a sultan. He was uh, the sultan, uh, I don't know, some sultan of the Ottoman Empire uh, around the early 1900s. And, and this is just a part of it. It says, His Imperial Majesty, the Sultan Abul Damin of, of uh, Khan, Emperor of the Ottomans, Caliph of the Faithful, Sovereign of the House of Osman, Sultan of Sultans, Khan of Khans, Commander of the Faithful, and Successor of the Prophet of the Lord of the Universe. It's pretty, that's a pretty big one. Protector of the Holy Cities of Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem, Emperor of the Three Cities of Constantinople, Andronople, and Burst. And I, I, just, I read this and I got this picture of, of, of you know, the sultans and, and who has the most impressive title. I have a more impressive title. And, and the reason I, I, I bring this up at all is sometimes if, you, if you've noticed that we've gone throughout this year, looking at the titles of Christ, you'll notice that a lot of, and as, as we're going to look at today, there, a lot of the titles that we've gone through actually appear in verses where, where Christ does this, where he has just a, a, a list of titles. And that's one of the, the most famous ones that we're looking at is Isaiah 9, 6. And, uh, and, and it says, for, us, uh, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his, counsel, uh, on his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of verses like this where, where it just goes through a string of titles. And, and I don't think it's, it's vanity. I don't think it's like a, a, a sultan kind of thing. But, but yet God does kind of want to impress upon us his importance and his roles and, and the things he does. And that he is, I mean... He is the highest of, of anything that he does. Um, he's not just a jack of all trades here. He's not just someone, he's like, you know, I'm really good at this. I, I, I mastered in this. I've got a minor in, in you know, education. But I, I, you know, he's, whatever he did, he's got the highest degree of it. Uh, and, and so, um, I think these are intended for us to impress upon us his capability with our lives. He wants us to know that He is trustworthy, that He fills all of our basic needs. If, if you've looked, if we've, we've, some titles are kind of similar. If we looked at all of His titles, as I say, there's, there's actually over 150 titles of Christ. Now, a lot of them are very similar, uh, almost identical, but uh, and we've condensed a few. But each one of these 
addresses a basic need that we have. God doesn't do useless jobs. Christ doesn't do useless things. Every title shows a job He fulfills. And, and every one of those titles is, is a basic need of humans. And so, in these titles, He's not just telling us what great things He does. But He's telling us, well, you're really missing this part. Uh, here's 150 things that you need. Right? Uh, and, and we're just selecting 50 of them or so this year. And the one that we are looking at, we've looked at power and, and, a, and a lot of things. But I want to talk today about the Prince of Peace. Uh, and so first, we're going to talk about the Peace of the Prince. Let's talk about the Peace of the Prince. And first, actually, we, we want to notice again this word Prince. And we've talked about the word Prince. Uh, it does not note the son of the king necessarily. Um, this word, uh, prince, it, it refers to someone who's prominent, prominent in a particular area. Uh, angels were called princes in Daniel. Um, and Solomon, Solomon was interesting. Uh, he was inaugurated king in two different locations, just to make sure that everyone got the picture. And we, we read um, last week about, about this rebellion that he had to put down. And so because of that rebellion that he had to put down, he wanted everyone to be clear exactly who was the king. So he was inaugurated twice in two different locations. And, and after he was inaugurated king in two different locations, he's still called a prince. So, so it's not... Necessarily, in our terminologies, the word prince doesn't mean a king in waiting, you know, like Prince Harry or Prince William or whatever, Prince Charles, um, who will never be king. Um, we talk about a prince of something. Um, it can mean chief among a group. Um, as we're going to see, Satan is called a prince. Well, that's, that's not good. Uh, we can talk about the prince of Egypt or prince of Babylon. Or the uh, Bible uses it reference that he's a prince in a sphere, a, a ruler over a sphere of something. And prince of, however, in this reference, prince of peace, is related to an idea or a principle. And and so I want to look at something. And so it has to do with uh, someone who epitomizes uh, something. That's one more shot. I think we are running low on batteries here, unless I've hit something that I shouldn't have hit. You want to advance that? I think we're low on batteries, so my technology there. Or is it not working? Oh, this is, okay, we're backing up, running? Nope. We are still not running. All right. We're going to have to do this without that. That's fine. Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 3. Okay, I'll trust it one more time. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 uh, says this. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And 
Here, of course, it's referring to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. Now, I would uh, need to... Okay, that is the wrong verse up there. I'm not sure how that got there, but um, that's okay. Um, we're just going to continue on. Um, the prince of the power of the air is a somewhat... Okay, I don't know what happened to that slide. We just turn that thing off. Just turn it off for today. We're done. Prince of the power of the air. Uh, we have to understand that they had a different idea back then. And they believed that, that demons lived in the air. They obviously got kicked out of heaven, so they couldn't be in heaven. And they couldn't see them, so they weren't on the ground. So they, they thought, well, maybe they were somewhere in between. And, and so, so they thought, well, the epitome of the, uh, Satan is the epitome of these demons. So he was in the power of the, the air, somewhere in between. So they had naturally concluded that demons lived in the air. Who knows? They could be right. Because um, we can't see them, so I don't know. But uh, Satan was called the prince of the power of the air. The power of the air. They, they, they thought then that this air was where bad things lived because that's where demons lived because hey it's logical if, if demons live somewhere that's pretty much a place where you don't want to be so um, you know I guess we don't want to fly on airplanes because that's where the demons are uh, and that's that's just the way their their brain worked that's the way their logic and it, you got to admit I mean if you had no other no other evidence that's a pretty logical conclusion now when, when Paul writes the prince of the power of the air, he's not saying that that's accurate. I think he's just simply referencing something that they understood and they, they, they could comprehend what he is saying. He's not confirming that, that Satan lives in the air. But that was his title and so he's referencing Satan. But the important thing in this passage is to notice what um, Satan was a prince of. He was a prince of power. And that's one of the things that, in this is a truth, that Satan is a prince of power. He, he is not weak. And Satan wants to intimidate. He likes to impress us. We talk about all those titles. Satan likes to impress us with his capability to do powerful things. In a negative way. But that is, uh, that is not... How Christ works. Matthew chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. I think that was the one that was up there. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And, and all of our kids learned this verse a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and the men marveled and said, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey his voice? As we talk about the Prince of Peace, Oh, Christ has a little bit of power of his own. He's a, a manner of a man that can command the elements themselves. And they obey him as though they had a will. As, as though they had the ability to respond. But what we note in this is 
the way Christ uses his power. And what Christ uses his power for is not to impress people, but he uses his power, and we will see this again and again, for peace. He is the prince of peace. He is the epitome of peace. He draws on peace through his power. Where Satan promotes fear and anxiety, Christ brings something much different. Well, I want to talk about what peace is. Well, it's a couple of things. Uh, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. He says this. They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered a synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not like the scribes. There was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Leave us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? But I know who you are. Remember the demons last week. We saw the demons are well acquainted. You know, I know, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul. Who are you? you know, the demons knew Christ. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. And when an unclean spirit had convulsed him, he cried out with a loud voice, so he didn't really obey immediately, but he did come out of him. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, and this is very similar, what is this? What, not, what new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately his fame spread throughout the region of Galilee. The first thing that peace is is an emotional calm. I uh, wonder what it was like to be this person to, and I've, I've, I've known people and I know it's not exactly the same thing, but um, in a natural way I've, I've known people with, uh, with various emotional disorders and, and psychological disorders and they describe what it's like before they get medicated. And I'm not suggesting that this is a natural thing. This is, the Bible clearly portrays this as demon possession. Right? And I, I think probably it worked a little bit similarly uh, and at least what it was like to to have this experience happen to you. And and uh, my friend uh, was talking about when he finally was right. He's like, it was like being in a bad dream all the time and you can't wake up. You know, that's what it was like. It was like, it was, it, it was not real, but it was all the time. Horrific. The anxiety and, and everything, everything that went with it. And Christ uses his power and brings peace. Christ uses that power that, that calmed the wind and he, he rebukes, not the wind, but he rebukes the spirit. He says, no, I'm here for peace. And he brings an emotional calm. 
to someone who's suffering. And you can just kind of imagine the relief of this man as he gets right. What it must have been like to get up after years or however long this had happened and suffered from this demon and to feel right. Man. But it is more than emotional calm or psychological calm. Peace is an end of conflict. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 12 through 15. Ephesians 2, 12 through 15. He says, At this time you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of that promise, having no hope. You were without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus you, were, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. He has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his body the enmity that is the law of commandments, which is contained in rules, so as to create in himself one new man from two, and thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, and thereby putting, death, putting to death that enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit, to the Father. And then here, uh, as we talk about the end of conflict, there are two different types of conflict that Christ, and, and in reading this, a lot of people try to say, well, it means this, or, or it means this, and when in reality, uh, both sides should get together because it means two things. Uh, and, and here, Paul identifies two types of peace that Christ made. First of all, he put an end of the to the conflict between God and man. That was the first and most important thing that he did. Man was, was at odds with God. For one, man had been given the task of, of trying to get to God through a list of rules, which of course can't happen. And, and so he was at odds because he kept on coming up short. So God says, really, there's only one way to me. And I'm going to show you what that is. And he does that through Christ. So, really, to say it a different way, it's not just the rules that made us at odds. The rules weren't the problem, he says uh, in Galatians. The, the problem was the sin that we did when we couldn't accomplish the rules. That was the real division between man. And God nails that to the cross. He he. That in one moment ends that enmity between God and man by saying, the rules won't help you, so let's get rid of the rules, but also your sin stands between us. And so at that cross, he gets rid of the sin and the rules. Or the, the first rules, it's not a covenant without rules, but it's a, it's a covenant that's not premised on rules. So the first thing was to, to, to take man 
back from being in hostage to these, these two things. But there is a second conflict here that, that he ends, and it is the conflict between people. There, there was a conflict between two groups of people. Well, there was the Jews and the Gentiles, but the story of mankind is the story of conflict between people. And he says, listen, I have gotten rid of conflict. Christ is an end of conflict between people. And, and a lot of times they say, well, okay, but we don't have Jews and Gentiles. That, that whole thing is not really a, a, a big deal in most places. I mean, in some places it is, but, but it's really not a big deal anymore. Well, we don't, you don't see that every day you, you leave here and, and, and you're going to go to work and you're gonna, there's going to be a big conflict between Jews and Gentiles at, at, your, uh, at your place of work or whatever. But there's still human conflict. And the conflict between man is over the same old things. What is the conflict between? Well, we have conflicts over property and money. We have conflicts over status and relationships and politics. And we have just every kind of conflict. Look at our world. Our world is in a state of conflict. It is never ending. And technology, though we thought technology was going to make things better, and we put all our eggs in the technology basket, it has only made it worse. And Christ says, I am a prince of peace. I am a prince who brings peace. And, and, and it doesn't make a difference whether it's Jewish, Gentile, or, or whether it's something else that, that we have today. Christ is still the same Prince of Peace. And He has the same ability to end conflict. Let me give you an example. Because I know the people in this room, I know the politics of most of the people in this room. And I know that there are people on one side who have quite differing politics from people on a different side. Yet somehow, every Sunday, we can imag we imagine that we can come together and sit around a communion table and celebrate the same things. And, and then we can, we can talk with each other in friendly ways without yelling and tweeting and doing whatever else we do. How is it that we do that with vastly different politics when the world around us does not seem to be able to get that? What's different here? The difference is there is a prince. There is one who epitomizes peace here. And when we come here, it is for something far greater. See, all of those things are, are the power. People have subscribed to that power, and that is the highest thing in their life. But when you come to something higher than that, those things are secondary. And it's not important. And we recognize that we can have a relationship, and that whatever it might be, 
it simply fades by comparison because Christ epitomizes peace. So peace is the end of conflict. And so we want to know the prince. I don't want to know about the prince, and I don't want to know about the type of peace he has, simply. But I want to know him. I want to be deeply and intimately connected with him. So I'm going to need to relearn a few things. I'm going to have to restudy peace and relearn the type of peace he has. John 14, 27. John chapter 14, verse 27. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not like the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to my Father, for my Father is greater than I am. Relearn peace. Christ says, I give you a different type of peace. Christ says, you're going to have to relearn peace. It's not just the emotional, frilly stuff. And so, as Romans chapter 8 says, Romans chapter 8 talks about peace. In verse 5, beginning, Romans 8, 5 through 7. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit... The things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, or the physical mind, is, is an enmity against God. Against We get to that, that opposition between man and God. Is that that's, that's the physical mindset. It's not subject to the laws of God, and indeed it cannot be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If he, anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And so, he says, you want peace, you're going to have to think differently. The mind set on all those other things, that those other things that we attribute power to and, and, and importance to, if you set your minds on those things, you will create peace, be, or, or you'll sever the peace between you and Christ, and then we will be back to no peace between us and other people. Those two things go hand in hand. So relearn. Get a new answer key. Throw the other one out. The answer key is a spiritual mindset. I do want you to know that there are a, a couple of things that, that you should know about Christ's peace that you might not be aware of. First of all, it comes with a little disquiet. Christ's peace is not this soothing, you know, Kenny G. Yanni music. Right? That's not peace. I want you to go back to that story of that man who Christ brings peace to. 
And it says, as the demon came out, what did he do? He, he yelled and he shook the man. I'm going to get one last little bit before I leave. And then the peace. God's peace, Christ's peace comes with a little disquiet. There will be moments the peace is not in the lack of quiet moments. The peace is in the dealing with those uh, attacks and assaults from Satan. That's where the peace is. The ability to get through those valleys in life. John 16:33 is an interesting verse about peace. John 16 verse 32 and verse 33 says, "Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And I have said these things to you so that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's just told them that they are going to have failures. You are going to fail big time tonight. Have peace. I, I say this to you, say so I wouldn't have peace if you told me you're going to really mess up. You've got a finals coming up, and you're going to, you're going to fail it, and you're going to have to take that over next term. You know, I don't have no peace. That doesn't sound like peace to me. You're going to flunk this year. You have to go back to school. You thought you were going to graduate. No. Like, that's not peace. You've got a major, you've got a major contract, and uh, you're going to mess up, and you're going to, you're going to lose your company millions of dollars. That's not peace. You're going to run away and betray the Creator of the universe tonight. Have peace. <laughs> Thanks. Have peace. Peace of God comes with failure. Because God sees the end of the story. So relearn it. Stop seeking answers is the other thing. Stop seeking answers. Is that you just said to relearn peace? How can you say to stop seeking answers? Well, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious for anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is beyond your ability to understand things. It's beyond that ability. You can't always know. And we want answers, and we want answers. And we think that we're gonna, the peace is going to be in the answers. Why did this happen? In 1993, I was in a car accident, and uh, uh, it was my fault. Uh, I turned down, uh, I looked down, I was in a, a van, 
It was a carpet cleaning van. I was doing janitorial work, so I had a huge industrial-sized engine plus a 50-some-odd-gallon water tank in it. Pretty heavy. I, uh, <clears throat> this is before cell phones. So, so I, uh, I, I, anyway, I looked down, and uh, I turned the radio on, and I looked up. It had rained. It was done, but the ground was wet, and everyone was stopped at a red light. And uh, heavy vans with engines and uh, water tanks don't stop so quickly. I hit the car, and that car hit the car in front of it. And I had to tell that to my boss. Uh, talk about some some bad choices and failures along the way. And um, why? And, and, and a person could sit there in their nice Cadillac, and two cars in front of me was a Cadillac. It was like the more details I kept telling my boss, the, the worse it got. Uh, and that person in that Cadillac, why me? What, what, what's, the, what's the divine reason? The divine reason is because some idiot two cars back wanted to listen to the radio at the exact wrong moment in time. That's why. There's no cosmic reason for everything. And we, we search and we lose peace because we're looking for the reason. And, and, and even if there was some divine reason, it probably wouldn't make you feel much better anyway knowing it. We need to stop searching for answers sometimes. Sometimes peace passes understanding. Sometimes peace is beyond my ability to grasp why. Just because. Now let's get to the peace. Let's have peace. As we close, don't have a great profound question. If I did, I can't remember what it was up on there. What is stealing your peace? What steals your peace? Are you still searching for a reason, for something? Have you fought and, and, and there's a why out there and you're sure there's a why and, and, and maybe it's something I did or maybe it's something that God wants me to... And there's all these whys that you're looking for. Give the whys up. If God wants you to know them, you'll know them. I'm not saying that nothing happens for a reason. But I'm saying if God hasn't made it abundantly clear to you, then it might not exist. But the second thing, as we look for peace, is to understand... that the things that I want to find peace in never bring it. I don't know what you look for for peace. But if you notice conflicts in your life, then it's because something has brought 
or, or, or you've looked to something to bring peace that's not elevated above. It's not up there where Christ says, I, I end conflict. 